You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight and we begin tonight with breaking news. Police from around the region are taking part in a major operation tied to a kidnapping in Port Moody. For the past three days, they have been tracking the suspects and the victim who was grabbed outside a Port Moody gym in broad daylight on Wednesday in front of horrified witnesses. Our Rumina Dea joins us with the exclusive details. Rumina. Sophie, it's been three days since the kidnapping here in Port Moody. No word on whether the hostage was dead or alive. Then late this afternoon, we found out he'd been found. He's alive. A dramatic takedown in Maple Ridge a short time ago. A man and woman were arrested. The emergency response team from Vancouver, Lower Mainland ERT and RCMP all involved in the arrest. The hostage in his 40s was rescued from a remote location we're learning, but we don't have any more information. We don't know what the motive was. We don't know if this is gang related or something else. We have learned, however, Sophie, that the victim was apparently kidnapped before. We're still waiting for details from Port Moody Police. In the meantime, Global News has learned that the victim was snatched just before the lunch hour on Wednesday morning on Brewery Row in Port Moody, a very popular, busy area, lots of families, lots of kids. Witnesses telling us that they heard someone screaming, help, help. They thought that it might be a kid. Adrenaline kicked in and they ran out the door of one of the businesses. When they got closer, they could see someone in front of Innovative Fitness struggling to get out of a van. His feet were hanging out. There were two people in masks. The victim was getting punched. One of the witnesses did everything she could to pull the victim out of the van by his legs, but she was powerless to stop the abduction. A man who was driving by saw the commotion and stopped to help. The girls were all freaking out, yelling, he just kidnapped, he just kidnapped. <clears throat> so I blocked the vehicle from trying to get out into oncoming traffic. I thought everybody could rush him by that time. As soon as I did, he drove up on the grass and took a, took off. Um, there was traffic uh, control people there. The girls were running towards the van as he took off. I hope the person can be brought home safe. Now, Global News has been investigating this case for multiple days now. We know that there are several takedown scenes in the region. We know at least two people were arrested. Not a lot of details on the victim. We are waiting for an update from Port Moody Police. Back to you. All right, Ramina Dea reporting in Port Moody for us tonight. Well, the inquest into Miles Gray's death today heard from a VPD officer who turned paramedics away because they weren't certified in advanced life support. Constable Derek Kane performed CPR on the 33-year-old man after a violent confrontation between Gray and Vancouver police officers near the Vancouver-Burnaby border. As the Matagahi reports, it was a day of emotional testimony. By the time Constables Bo Spencer and Derek Kane arrived to help their colleagues try to arrest Miles Gray, the 33-year-old had been badly beaten. Constables Sahota, Bursnick, Folkstead, Wong and Thompson have testified to using significant force. Baton strikes, knee strikes, punches, kicks, chokeholds, vascular neck restraints and pepper spray, all used by police on Gray, who was unarmed, shirtless and shoeless. They beat him down. He needed help. 
not a beatdown. He needed help. Before helping get Gray into handcuffs, both Spencer and Kane testified to having delivered blows to Gray's arms. It was shortly after that that each officer witnessed the final moments of Gray's life. I will never forget that sound of someone exhaling all the air out of their lungs, Kane testified emotionally. His face went deep red and purplish in color, and I knew at that moment he had stopped breathing. Before joining police, Kane was a paramedic. He resuscitated Gray momentarily. Still to this day, it gives me chills, said Constable Bo Spencer. Mr. Gray turned his head and looked at me directly in the face, and he said, what's going on? I told Mr. Gray, you've been in a fight with officers, and there is an ambulance on the way. Constable Derek Kane testified that he turned away the first paramedics and firefighters from treating Gray because they were not advanced life support certified. I yelled at them to go back downstairs, he told the jury. There was nothing a basic life support paramedic could do for Mr. Gray. I truly believe in all my heart we would bring him back, but all of our resuscitation efforts were unsuccessful. The VPD kept pushing Miles down to the ground and they did not let the paramedics stand to him or the firefighters. I don't even have descriptor words bad enough to tell you how I feel about that. The jury has now heard from all of the Vancouver police officers that had responded to the disturbance call and tried to arrest and subdue Miles Gray. The focus of the inquest will now shift to what happened and who became involved in the weeks, the months, and the years after his death. Emad Agahi, Global News. Well, one of the themes emerging from the Gray inquest, inquest is that most of the officers didn't take notes while the incident was fresh in their minds, as per VPD policy. As Catherine Urquhart reports, two more constables have testified that representatives of the Vancouver Police Union told them not to. At the coroner's inquest into the violent death of Miles Gray, officers have testified they were told not to take notes at the direction of the Vancouver Police Union. Present at the time, according to the officers, were union representatives Tom Stamatakis and Ralph Kaisers. It feels to me as if the union and its officers are putting the interests of the members ahead of everything else. During the inquest, Ian Donaldson asked Constable Derek Kane, and your best recollection is that was an instruction from Tom Stamatakis? Kane responded, it's a recollection, but I'm not 100% confident. If that individual is a police officer, whether they're part of the command structure within the Vancouver Police Department or part of the union, which has no supervisory authority over the members of the department, that council commit a disciplinary default under the Police Act. Now that is very, very uh, significant here because it is neglect of duty. Global News asked the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner if Tom Stamatakis and Ralph Kaisers are under investigation. Their response? Confidentiality provisions contained in the Police Act prohibit the OPCC from disclosing that an investigation has been or may be initiated. Proceedings such as a hearing before a retired judge may occur once the discipline proceeding is concluded. So far, Stamatakis and Kaisers have not responded when asked directly if they told officers not to take notes. The Canadian Police Association, at which Stamatakis is now president, stated, 
Out of respect for the ongoing inquiry taking place, Mr. Stamatakis will not be offering comment on this matter until the conclusion of the process. VPD Chief Adam Palmer has acknowledged note-taking is a vital aspect of policing. Well, we have policy on note-taking, and officers uh, know what that policy is. Tom Stamatakis and Ralph Kaisers are not on the coroner's inquest list. More than seven years after the death of Miles Gray, the lack of transparency surrounding his death continues. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A high-level meeting was held today to address growing concern over public safety right across this country. Premiers heard from law enforcement about what needs to be done specifically when it comes to repeat offenders. Keith Baldry joins us with more. Keith, the premiers were calling for action from the federal government today. Yeah, they met virtually for about an hour today with the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs. It's sort of a joint effort to put pressure on the federal government to change the laws, in particular when it comes to violent offenders getting bail. Here's Heather Stevenson, the Premier of Manitoba. She chairs the Council of the Federation. Now more than ever, federal action is needed. Reform should not be delayed further for public protection and safer communities and to support the work and dedication of all of our law enforcement officers that seek to protect Canadians right across our country. So the premiers are unanimous on this front. B.C. Premier David Eby did not appear on camera, but he did issue a written statement here saying that in B.C. the prosecutors and the police uh, basically uh, are doing their part to keep people safe. And then the federal government must act on its promise to amend federal bail laws to address the national risk to public safety. Also, very interestingly, for the first time, we're getting some data on the bail uh, grant situation. The premier uh, revealing today that less than half the requests by B.C. prosecutors to keep people People behind bars, particularly violent offenders, are being granted by the judges in the B.C. judicial system. Uh, that's a rather alarming statistic. We'll get more stats like that from Attorney General Nikki Sharma next week. All right, looking forward to that. Thanks, Keith. Well, charges have finally been laid in a fatal crash at the Peace Arch border. The collision killed a B.C. pastor and shocked drivers at the crossing. What we know about the Washington state man who made his first court appearance today. That's next on the News Hour. This is the glory. This is the, the celebration and this is the prize. Celebrating Eid al-Fitr, how Muslims in B.C. are marking the end of Ramadan later on the news hour. Plus. Oh, there's a buzz going on around this for sure. The Sunshine Coast about to score a piece of hockey history from the Pacific Coliseum. That's still to come. Right now, though, it has taken nearly four years, but a man is now charged in a fiery crash at the Peace Arch border crossing that killed a B.C. pastor. The driver from Washington State is accused of being behind the wheel of a Porsche Cayenne that hit a minivan and burst into flames. Kristen Robinson has the details from court today. Gurbinder Singh leaves Surrey Provincial Court after his first appearance on a charge of dangerous driving causing death. Was there anything you wanted to say to Mr. Chung's family? The 39-year-old registered nurse from Edmonds, Washington is accused in a fiery crash at the Peace Arch border crossing. The Crown says Singh was driving his Porsche Cayenne northbound to the Peace Arch border check on May 2, 2019 allegedly traveling up to 120 kilometers an hour before he struck the rear of a Toyota Sienna minivan. 
it looked like a bomb had gone off. Gone off. It, it felt like a bomb had gone off. Both vehicles ended up in a flower bed. The minivan burst into flames. Its sole occupant, Port Moody pastor and father of three, Tom Chung, died at the scene. Singh was arrested and certified under the Mental Health Act, according to the Crown, which told the court there was no indication drugs or alcohol were involved. What happened that day? Singh had no comment. A warrant for his arrest was executed without him being taken into custody. After driving up from Washington State for court, he was released on a $1,000 cash deposit with two conditions, including appearing before the court when required. Kristen Robinson, Global News. The provincial government has launched a program to make BC's second busiest port more efficient and sustainable. The so-called Integrated Marketplace Initiative will help the Port of Prince Rupert utilize homegrown technology to reduce greenhouse gases, increase productivity and improve safety. The measures will include electrification of equipment and alternative fuel options, as well as reducing emissions from idling vehicles and equipment. Prince Rupert is Canada's third largest port handling 60 billion dollars worth of cargo each year. The Roberts Bank container port is about to get much bigger with the federal government greenlighting a major expansion. It's being touted as an economic imperative, but environmental groups are sounding alarm bells. Paul Johnson reports. You don't have to be a biologist to get that the tidal mudflats around Delta's Roberts Bank terminal are a rich and delicate ecosystem, which is why the news from Ottawa is being received with such concern. This is a project that will provide significant economic benefits to BC and Canada. It will increase the Port of Vancouver's container handling capacity by up to 60%. Roberts Bank 2, as it's known, will amount to a massive expansion of the terminal births for three more ships and the creation of dozens of hectares of new land. With projections showing that the region's west coast ports will be maxed out by the 2030s, the hundreds of billions of dollars in trade they handle makes the economic case clear. But the ecological one, less so. It's devastating news for anybody that cares about the CELUC and wants to protect it. Lucero Gonzalez is with the Georgia Strait Alliance one of several conservation groups that have spoken out since the announcement. We know that these projects will cause significant and lastly, lasting adverse effects to the endangered southern resident orcas and their main prey, wild Pacific salmon. The worry is that increased shipping traffic will mean more noise and threat of collision with the struggling southern resident orcas and that alterations to the coastline could make it harder for juvenile salmon to feed and shelter in the eelgrass there. But the feds have attached literally hundreds of conditions to the project. At the Surrey Board of Trade, Anita Huberman believes the balance between economy and environment can be found on this one. It's going to be good for the economy, the creation of jobs, and really ensuring that we have sustainable supply chain systems that will benefit not only our local economy, but also our national economy. In Delta, Paul Johnson, Global News. The Port of Vancouver already a major economic driver for the region and all of Canada, contributing about $12 billion to the nation's GDP. The port currently handles about $275 billion in goods annually, and the federal government says the port supports more than 115,000 jobs across Canada and pays $7 billion in wages.
Coming up, municipalities taking matters into their own hands. So let's come to the table with local decision makers who are the experts in their community. How more BC cities are making their own attempts to curb public drug use. Plus, sign of the times how a BC municipality's tax hike has residents fuming. Signs protesting a proposed property tax increase in the city of Langford are getting a lot of attention, especially from the city's bylaw department. A group calling itself Our Langford has been putting up the signs around the Vancouver Island city, criticizing the proposed 12% increase, calling it unprecedented. On Wednesday, they got a call from the manager of bylaw enforcement who told them there had been several complaints and the signs must only be placed on private property, not on municipal roadways. Following an uproar from the community, that decision has now been reversed. As it stands, we've been told we can leave our signs up, and, uh, and, but we're not stopping. People move to Langford because it's affordable and we're here fighting for those people and uh, to make sure um, and you know we got we got to we got to get this uh, uh, this tax hike down it's it's wrong in a statement, a city spokesperson explained due to the challenging tax year at hand and the city wanting residents to voice their feedback, bylaw was, di was directed not to move the signs in any location. Well, the opposition is calling on the provincial government to allow municipalities to bring in their own bylaws surrounding the use of hard drugs in public spaces. As Richard Zussman reports, the province's newly implemented decriminalization laws have complicated matters. Having a beer or wine at the beach, using marijuana on a park bench, both banned in B.C. What is still allowed, under law, using hard drugs on beaches and in parks. They could have implemented, um, you know, a province-wide strategy for helping cities cope with, you know, what we all see, which is street disorder. Um, and, and we really could use that as a tool to guide people towards services as well. Decriminalization laws in this province have contributed to the complication Hard drugs have been banned on school grounds and at child care facilities, but parks exempt, partly because some people make their homes there. In the same way that you would have like a provincial liquor ticket or for use of cannabis or, or smoking or something like that. So, I mean, but what we have now is really a patchwork where municipalities are considering doing their own bylaws. That includes in Kamloops, where Councillor Katie Newstater introduced a motion to restrict drug use in public parks. But the local health authority is pushing back. Interior Health raising concerns a bylaw would reinforce drug use stigma. We do not want people overdosing in spaces alone. We don't want people driven into spaces where they can't use safely. And to that I would say let's create the solutions we need for that then. The provincial government says decriminalization does not impact what bylaws municipalities pass. And they point to Sycamuse where they now have a restriction around the use of drugs in some public spaces. And that's what municipalities are doing. They are engaging appropriately with their medical health officers to determine what the local conditions are, what the local issues are, and what needs to be done. And in Sycamus, they now have a bylaw that I understand all parties are satisfied with. What I've heard the province saying is that they are willing to work with municipalities to find solutions that work, and yet I'm not sure what those would be yet. There hasn't been a fulsome conversation that would outline that. Campbell River Council attempted similar bylaws this year, but it ended up in court and the community rescinded the policy. It's still unclear exactly what each health authority is looking for, making it harder to add hard drugs to these signs across the province. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria.
Coming up, a devastating year in the toxic drug crisis. We cannot afford to lose any more. And yet, we will continue to. How it's taken a terrible toll on First Nations in BC. Plus, to shut down all of these clinics it really feels like a dismissal. Long haulers left behind. Why they feel abandoned by the provincial government. Big delays on Highway 1 in Burnaby tonight. There's a major crash eastbound just after Willingdon with only the right lane getting by. Plenty of emergency crews on scene. It's also causing big delays for westbound traffic as well. Integra Tire is proud to serve the communities they are part of. Contact your local dealer today and get up to $100 in tire rebates. Integra Tire, truly local. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Centre. Avoid Highway 1 through Burnaby tonight. Crews are on scene to a multi-vehicle accident eastbound, just east of Willingdon. Traffic is down to a single lane and backed up to the Cassiar Tunnel. Integra Tire is proud to serve the communities they are part of. Contact your local dealer today and get up to $100 in tire rebates. Integra Tire, truly local. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Well, since BC's toxic drug crisis began, it's been known to hit First Nations communities disproportionately hard. New numbers out today show just how bad it is. Julie Nolan reports. The way that we go forward is to create hope. With the toxic drug crisis now marking its seven-year anniversary in BC, the First Nations Health Authority is turning to hope and healing. And those that are hurt are carrying shame, guilt, pain and it ultimately leads to self-medication. The FNHA has startling data showing a disproportionate impact of the toxic drug crisis on First Nations people in the province, with 2022 being the most destructive year yet. Not only was there a 6.3% increase in First Nations deaths from the previous year, but First Nations women died at 11.2 times the rate of other females in BC. FNHA has pivoted our toxic drug crisis response to have a greater focus on First Nations women and has dedicated a portion of our harm reduction, outreach and engagement programs to support women, especially in urban areas. The health authority says much of this can be attributed to things like a lack of housing, systemic racism or even the path into prostitution in urban areas like the downtown east side. They also point to colonialism and the effects of residential schools as a root cause of many of these issues. There's a strong association between the history of trauma in people's lives and their propensity to a substance use disorder. This can include intergenerational trauma that has impacted individuals, families and communities. First Nations across the province are begging for solutions. The health authority says the drug crisis is leading to the loss of an entire generation of their young people. Solutions and innovations will come when you listen deeply to young people and those affected by their drug use. Through an increase in harm reduction and access to services, the FNHA wants to address stigmas and change the way they treat people with substance abuse issues. We cannot afford to lose any more, and yet we will continue to, until we find more effective ways to respond. Julie Nolan, Global News. Well, people in BC who are still struggling with long COVID feel like they're fighting yet another battle to get proper care. As Travis Prasad reports, they're angry the government has closed all five of its in-person clinics to treat and study the debilitating condition. 
no longer able to go to the store herself, Katie McLean gets her groceries delivered. I really, you know, lost my independence. The East Vancouver resident lives with long COVID, more than two and a half years after being infected with the virus. Since I've had COVID, I have not been able to work. I am primarily housebound. Uh, I can maybe get out of my apartment like one to two times per week, uh, usually for an appointment. For McLean, long COVID has led to brain fog, dizzy spells and debilitating fatigue. Even socializing is really taxing, like trying to have a visit with a family member requires rest before and after. The estimate is pretty consistent across all the studies that about 10% of individuals who get COVID will go on to develop post-viral syndrome. In BC, the estimated 5,000 COVID long haulers could manage their symptoms by seeing doctors at five long COVID clinics, four on the Lower Mainland and one on Vancouver Island. But on April 1st, the BC government shut the clinics down. Patients have been left as orphans in terms of care. All long COVID appointments in the province are now held virtually. BC's health minister says the clinics were shuttered because long COVID cases dropped from 750 a month in 2021 to just 80 a month by the end of last year. Intention here wasn't to reduce care, but it's to ensure people had it in every part of the province and to make it a permanent part of our health care system. And that's what we've done. McLean says the virtual appointments are largely group-oriented, making it harder to access patient-specific treatment that was offered in person. It's like now, um, if I want to access, I can, I can register for like a group webinar and it will have a specific topic and it will just have somebody kind of speaking on the topic and then maybe like a little question period. The province says long COVID funding is permanent and the research continues, but those living with it aren't so sure. To shut down all of these clinics really feels like a dismissal and personally I feel very left behind by society and the government. Travis Prasad, Global News. Still to come, taking apart a piece of hockey history. This core clock was purchased uh, primarily for the Winter Olympics in 2010. Why the Pacific Coliseum scoreboard is coming down and how it's a win for the Sunshine Coast. Plus, one of the world's biggest parties makes a comeback after COVID, setting the stage for Surrey's Vasaki Day Parade next. One of the biggest cultural celebrations in the world is returning to Surrey this weekend. Hundreds of thousands of people are expected to take in the Vasaki Parade and events marking the most important time of the year on the sick calendar. Global's Janet Brown has a preview. The Surrey Kulsa Day Vasaki Parade is returning after a three-year absence because of COVID. It's believed to be one of the largest in the world. Depending on the weather, more than half a million people are expected to turn out. 500 to 550,000 was what we saw in 2019, and we're preparations and expectations this year hovering around 700 to 750,000. So we're preparing for that large of a crowd to up to three quarters of a million people. The parade itself will feature thousands of participants representing various community organizations with a variety of floats and booths along the parade route. It does feel a little different coming back after three years, but it's important to remember and celebrate the birth of Khalsa. I am new in Canada. Um, this is my first experience, it's amazing. <laughs> and what's any celebration without food? being served to those setting up. We are going to make lots. We are starting around 4 o'clock in the morning. 
and uh, we have uh, prepared everything. Now we have started the langar, and uh, we are going on till the last moment. Delicious for everybody. No cost, no color. Some children were eager to test out the rides. The Surrey Board of Trade says the economic impact is not only seen in Surrey, but across Metro Vancouver. The consumers that are spending money, imagine 700,000 people concentrated in the Newton area of Surrey, but also going all over the city and the region, uh, spending money. Uh, the actual dollar amounts aren't something that I can speak to, uh, but it is significant. The parade starts at 9 a.m. Saturday, and while rain is in the forecast, everyone is hoping for the sun to come out. This event came after three years, so... We're excited to be here and I wish there is uh, weather should be good tomorrow. Janet Brown, Global News. And another big cultural event happening in Metro Vancouver today. Members of the Muslim community have gathered at BC Place for Eid al-Fitr to mark the end of Ramadan. Our Michael Newman has more on the significance of the celebration. I'm here at BC Place where over 8,000 folks from the Muslim community have come together to celebrate Eid al-Fitr to mark the end of the month of Ramadan. On three, on three. One, two, three. Here, families and friends from all over the Lower Mainland came to visit with each other after a month of devotion, fasting, contemplation, and today enjoying the simple pleasures of just sharing food together and the kids playing together in bouncy castles, doing henna and face painting. And this is a special gathering for many people who haven't been able to come together for many years during COVID. And I got a chance to speak with some people about what aid means to them. Take a look. Getting together, tolerance, joy and cheering the, uh, the all the efforts that we have all done after a whole month of uh, sacrifice and uh, fasting i love it it's really fun you get to experience a lot of you know a lot of young people like us you get to be with them all the time you get to help people so i like it. it's really good one month is not small it's a big accomplishment it feels good and we're very happy to be celebrating with everyone and very grateful. It's one of two major holidays in, in the Muslim nation. That's, they, they celebrate only two. So this one is, is, is huge. The kids enjoy it, uh, the families. Um, it's about the camaraderie. It's about the community. Um, it's, it's about giving also, right? It's, it's a new page. When you start and you're, and you're happy that, that you, you performed your, your month of Ramadan as, as well as you could, it, it is, it, this, is, this is the glory. This is the, the celebration and this is the prize. A wonderful celebration full of joy and happiness uniting the community here at BC Place. And I want to wish a happy Aid Mubarak to all of those celebrating today. Michael Newman reporting from Aid Fest. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon now with a look at our weather forecast and crossing our fingers that the weather will be okay mm -hmm. for the Visaki Day Parade tomorrow, Christy. Yeah, I was a little bit of pressure on for that one. Yeah, unfortunately, it isn't looking super great. It isn't looking like a soaker necessarily, but in terms of real sunshine, that's the tough one this weekend. It would be better if it was next weekend because we've been advertising. It does look like this ridge of high pressure is going to allow the temperatures to soar. So we're expecting 20 to mid 20s, low 20s to mid 20s across the lower mainland away from the water, that real warmth. And it's all because of the jet stream that's going to drive well north of our province, really pulling in 
that milder air, as well as blocking any systems from making their way onshore. For those of you in the southern interior, this is what it would look like. Now, in the meantime, we have several sort of pulses of rainfall that we have to contend with. One starting to push in, we've got another one sort of in behind and another one in behind that. So let me break down your weekend. For starters, for the south coast in the morning hours, and this could be a good news for the Vaisakhi Day Parade, we are looking at mostly dry conditions. Now, we still have a 40% chance of showers. Don't leave home without your rain jacket, but overall conditions are looking drier earlier in the day. It's towards the late afternoon hours that we'll start to see the heavier rain shift into the south coast area or to the metro Vancouver area. Uh, Vancouver Island, you'll see it a little bit earlier. And the rain will be on and off into Sunday also, but again, later in the day Sunday, that's when we'll see the more significant rain. So there's your forecast for your Saturday. Bulk of the rainfall from the north coast through the central coast. Gorgeous conditions in through the central interior, uh, southern interior as well. Look at Kamloops at 19 degrees. For our region, we're talking about below seasonal values once again, a high of only 10 degrees. Again, morning, cloud, and just a 40% chance of showers. Late afternoon for Metro Vancouver, that's when the more consistent rain will push in. It will be on and off on Sunday, and we're trending towards sunshine as we head into next week. Here's tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Summerland. This is from Maureen, and uh, this is a perfect image, in my opinion, to say happy Friday. We're into the weekend. Okay, so back to you. Go for a ride. All right, thanks, Christy. Well, we all know how much of a pain moving can be, so that's why the experts were brought in to help relocate a huge piece of equipment that's played a key role in many moments of BC sports history. It's a tedious job. It's, uh, there's a lot of pieces, a lot of parts, a lot of planning. The center ice screens and scoreboards from the Pacific Coliseum are going to a new home on the Sunshine Coast. The scoreboard will be trucked through Vancouver to Richmond, placed on a barge and reassembled in Gibsons, where it will preside over Sunshine Coast junior hockey games. Um, and it'll be reinstalled, uh, but it'll be reinstalled in a different formation. It's not going to get put back together. It's going to get placed in panels uh, in the, each corner of the arena. They don't uh, often uh, get to see their plays uh, replayed to them in uh, instant replay. And, you know, I know the, the players enjoy it and the fans enjoy it. And it's really going uh, really to up the level, uh, up the experience for everyone. The clock is not the original. This one was installed in the Coliseum in 2007. It was one of the upgrades ahead of the 2010 Winter Olympics. All right, Squire. So it was used in the Olympics. It was used in the Olympics, yeah. It was used by the Vancouver Giants. Yeah. Monster but not the Vancouver Canucks, because the Canucks no. haven't played at the Coliseum since 1995. I'm not even sure where that old that scoreboard went. they played at the Coliseum now when you go back there. It's kind of... What's that? It's, when you go back to the Coliseum now to think, oh, yeah, the Canucks used to play here. I know. It does seem odd. But without that arena, there would not have been NHL hockey in Vancouver. So... The oh. rink on Renfrew. That's right. Yeah. Never diss the rink on Renfrew. Mm -hmm. It brought the NHL here. Good okay. Mess. It was a huge upset, and they're still talking about it, in the Canadian Soccer Championship Tournament. It happened on Wednesday when Burnaby's TSS Rovers beat Valor FC of Winnipeg. Uh, yeah, the event was incredible. The, the boys didn't play the moment. Uh, they played the game. The Rovers are a semi-pro team who many thought didn't have a chance of winning. And later tonight, fun Friday. Squire has satellite debris.
I'm ready. Then take it away. Okay, I've been rehearsing all day for this moment. <laughs> the uh, Abbotsford Canucks can win their best of three playoff series tonight. They'll start in about 15 minutes against the Bakersfield Condors. However, if the Condors should spoil the party, then this series would end on Sunday. It's a best of three, so Sunday would be the final game no matter what, and that would also be 7 o'clock at the Abbotsford Centre. Okay, today, Canada with five BC boys on the team at the U18s taking on Germany. Now, we lost our opening game 8-0 to Sweden, but that's a nice goal by Richmond's Lukas Dragasevich. That made it 3-0 in the second period. It was pretty much all Canada. Well, we lost the first game 8-0. We won this game 8-0. The German goalkeeper was buried under Canadian rubber. Matthew Wood from Macklin Celebrini, two BC boys connecting. That's a nice goal too. Wood from Nanaimo, Celebrini from Vancouver. Dragasevich was the player of the game and 8-0 was the final score for Canada. There's Dragosevich right there getting his award. Okay, yesterday, SFU put out a statement that said it'll hire a special advisor to study whether or not there is a future for football at the school in 2024. The statement said that all parties agreed there was no way they could play football in 2023. But the SFU Football Alumni Society says it can play football this year. They have a possible schedule with as many as nine teams agreeing to non-conference games against SFU. Bless you. And they never agreed to shutting the team down this year. So, yeah, so the statement in which that was released by the university um, is not in complete alignment with the meeting in which that we had yesterday with the university, being President Joy Johnson and VP Provost Wade Parkhouse. So while they may have sort of indirectly or may have directly uh, misconstrued some information about everyone being in alignment with not moving forward and then the cancellation of 2023 and that being an opportunity to return. Uh, that was not the conclusion of the communication in which we had. So the statement in which that was released was never approved and or brought to our attention beforehand. So misleading. Would you like a tissue and or some medication? Um, maybe a tissue. Okay. Oh, there's some right there. Oh, there's one back there. Okay. You use that. Thank you. Um, Wednesday night, Canadian Soccer Championship Tournament game, Burnaby's TSS Rovers against Winnipeg's Valor FC, which is in the Canadian Premier League. That game is still being talked about in the soccer community. It's not hyperbole to say TSS Rovers winning that game was a soccer David over Goliath story. Or to put it another way, it's kind of like Sophie and I winning a karaoke contest against Beyonce and Lady Gaga. You've never heard me sing. Oh, that's right, I haven't. Lady Gaga, go. TSS Rovers have done the unthinkable. A magical night at Swan Guard Stadium. Not even they believed they could pull off a win like this, but League One BC side TSS Rovers out of Richmond beat Canadian Premier League side Valor FC out of Winnipeg to make it to the quarterfinals of the Canadian Championships, which will feature teams like the Whitecaps and Toronto FC. For these semi-pro players to pull off a victory like this is truly one they will never forget. I think more than anything it builds a memory between all of us. We're going to look back at, at this moment here um, no matter how, how it goes in the next game, no matter how it goes in, you know, even in the season I think we've all got this memory of, you know, we've kind of 
we've done it together. Sits down! Are you kidding me? Rovers playing a league a step below the Canadian Premier League. These are players who are looking to get to that level or who've been there before and are trying to get back. Uh, guys who are, you know, have jobs, aspiring pros, but they got to pay the rent, eat, go to school. Uh, so we have a mix mash in that uh, zone, but that's what they're typically made up of. Getting a win like this with national TV exposure certainly helps their cause. We know there's a bunch of them in there that deserve it, uh, but also feel maybe a little chip on their shoulder. So there was some belief going in that they could do something. Um, what they did, I'm not sure they believed. Um, I certainly did not. Well, believe it, they did it, and now they move on to play Pacific FC out of Victoria in the quarterfinals. That match will be played on the island on May 10th, giving TSS Rovers a few weeks to plan their next massive upset. People coming in and, and thinking that there's, there's no chance for you, and that honestly, that takes a lot of the pressure off of it. It's an opportunity for these boys to go out and uh, one more time be on live TV and uh, with all the people watching and, and uh, be talked about. So nothing changes on my end. Go get it. Now I'm willing to give up all my satellite debris time if you want to show us your song styling. <laughs> Come on. I'm sure nope. the audience would love to hear you <laughs> sing for three minutes. No, I feel like our ratings would plummet. Uh, I don't know. Satellite debris will be next, not my singing. Oh, that's too bad. All right, it's our favorite time of the week. You're not going to sing, right? No, unless there's an avocados from Mexico jingle. I wish I'd put yeah, one in. Yeah, that might do it. I wish I'd put one in. Okay, we're going to start with uh, a couple um, about Shreddies, the cereal. Here we go. <laughs> You are strong, you are strong, you are unbreakable, you are unbreakable, you are uncrushable, you are uncrushable, you never flake. Be ready for anything! Luke School! Sounds like you need Nick Get It Done Knowles. I built the hospital I was born in. I could put up a shelf just by looking at it. Richard, know what you need? Shreddies. When things get tough, don't eat soft. Shreddy. Shreddy for anything. That would be a cool thing to have in the shreddies. house. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I like shreddies too, Christy. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. can make little shreddy sandwiches with three of them. Oh, the things you can do. I guess so. Okay, uh, this one's uh, from Diet Dr. Pepper. Really want a cupcake, but not the calories. Little sweet sliding down the banister. Someone crying because they can't have a cupcake. I, I didn't cry. On the inside, you did. Little sweet can hear that. He can. Don't worry. Little sweet brought you some sweet zero calorie treats called Diet Dr. Peppers. Oh yeah. That is sweet. Little sweet defying gravity. Is that little sweet? Die, Dr. Pepper. It's the sweet one. You can sing along to these next two commercials. These are both from Geico <laughs> and they both have songs you might recognize. Okay. Here I go again on my own. 
orb. You left me hanging on the high harmony there. <laughs> if you ride, you get it. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Say you Carl, what have you done? Think anyone will notice? Yes. Yeah. If you ride, you get it. Yeah, they will. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, Carl. <laughs> so we Carl. Have, we have Carl. 20 seconds left. To tell us you're a drifter who's been born to walk alone or whatever. It, oh, whatever I'm not doing that. Come, Come on. No, 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 no. No, because you'll leave me what? hanging on the harmony. I will leave you hanging <laughs> on the high harmony. You're right. Oh, all right, well, that's all the oh, time, Carl. luckily. Thanks I, to um, Ms. Ayotte's grade 9 class at Vancouver College for having me today. Bye, everyone.